Hello and welcome to Clustering Insights podcast with JLL. I'm your host, Chris Walters, the head of UK Life Sciences. I'm delighted to host another podcast today and delighted to introduce Tony Jones, who is the chief executive of One Nucleus, which is a life science membership based in Cambridge, but very much has been um, heavily involved in this sector for some time. So firstly, thank you, Tony, for joining. How are you today? I'm very well, thanks. And, and thanks for the invite. No problem at all. I'm really looking forward to having a conversation. Um, perhaps just to kick off, I mean, I've, I've really only done a one-liner in terms of, of who One Nucleus are. If you could explain in your own words what, what you are, what you've been doing and, and your role specifically, that'd be great. And we'll go from there. Yeah, sure. So One Nucleus, it's a, a not-for-profit membership group for life science companies. So we're funded by member subscription. We're not funded by regional or national government. And I'll probably come back to that now and again as to why that influences what we do. Um, we've been going now since uh, late 90s into 2000. Initially as two separate groups, there was a group in Cambridge called ERBI, uh, which was really the probably one of the first cluster groups, I guess, in, in Europe in, in that sense. And I used to be director of something called the London Biotechnology Network from 2003 onwards. And it's interesting because all of these things and cluster groups came around really as a result of Lord Sainsbury's review back in, I think it was 96, 97 for the government when he was science minister saying, if you want technologies to thrive, they need to talk to each other. It needs to be a mechanism for these people to interact. Don't just leave it to chance. And hence government funding was given out regionally to develop these cluster groups and networks with the exception of London. They just saw London as being London, being different. Uh, and so that baton was picked up by a, another membership group in London called London First, but they were multi-sector and large business, but saw the importance of life sciences and biotech coming through uh, you know, 20 years ago to London's economy and London stakeholders. So these things became a, a reality. It was a means to get people to talk to each other, and that's what we've carried on for the last 20 years. Um, we really provide that mechanism for the the ecosystem or community or cluster, whichever way we, we describe it, they're almost interchangeable. And it's a broad church. You know, it's everything from the primary R&D companies who are starting up to the global farmer, investors, the professional services that help them are through the, the legal side of contracts and setting up companies and due diligence, regulatory providers, technical service providers, and of course, those that are building the properties and facilities to accommodate them as they grow. So it's a means, our job really is to do a bit of knitting and bring these people into one seamless community that challenges each other to get better at it, shares their knowledge, and equally creating an environment for deal making. Whether that deal is in finding another job, whether it's in finding the next funding round, whether it's securing the right lab space, or the R&D collaborations or customers then that's, that's our job. It's creating that environment for those companies to thrive. That's great. And you mentioned it's been an initiative that started in, in the late 90s. I mean, how has, the, how has the market changed over the past 20 years? When you look back at when you set up and how I'm sure you've evolved over time as the, as the industry's changed. Yeah, yeah. It's, I guess there's one common thing that, doesn't change and that's human behavior. So people need to interact. They have to build trust, build relationships, build awareness. And that's a very 
human factor of, of how business works, particularly in something like life sciences, which is kind of all about collaboration and, and what drives it. But in terms of what's really changed over those 20 years, I think, like everything, everything's become more global and international. So when we started these groups, you got questions like, well, who's doing this just down the road in London if you were in Cambridge or Cambridge if you're in London or even in different parts of London when I was doing the London Biotech Network. Over time, those questions changed to become, well, who do you know in San Francisco or who do you know in Sydney? So that everything became much more international and you're in a sector like life sciences and I think this is what COVID showed us over the last couple of years. It's a global initiative to meet unmet medical need. And that doesn't respect national boundaries or even continental. It's where's the best science and the best innovators who can put this together and solve huge challenges. So it's become much more outward looking, I guess, from a regional or national perspective, much more competitive over that time. So the UK was and still does lead on most metrics of what biotech and, and pharma and, and life sciences do in terms of outputs or attracting venture capital, creating drug pipelines. But as it's become more global, other territories sort of, we should be part of this. And, and that's changed too. You know, you look at the culture in parts of different clusters in Europe where entrepreneurship was almost unheard of 10, 15 years ago. That's really grown. So I think we've seen as much as it's much more connected and a great growing opportunity with growing opportunity becomes an incredible chance of of challenge by others as well. So it's never a one-way street. Uh, I think what you have to work out is what we try and do with, with our community is where you fit in the value chain in, in your field. So what fits where is actually quite important in this at all levels. And that is that is constantly evolving because of the the nature of the technologies that's driving the science. When you think about um, some of the major trends that are affecting your membership, particularly uh, from a company perspective and occupier perspective, what do you what do you think are the are the biggest things from a, a trend perspective that are influencing their behaviour? I think it's it's combinations of things. A major factor in this is is technology, and and the convergence of tech with bio. Uh, you know, I think the more and more we see decision making in biomedical research is driven by huge data sets or informed by it is not necessarily driven very much informed by the big genomics platforms or any omics beyond that which you could argue the only one that matters is economics but that's the output but essentially i think big data is has really impacted increasingly on biopharma r&d so that brings in different mindsets of of experts and, and innovators it brings in different speeds of decision-making and, and often different cultures. We used to think the two main cultures were academia and industry. Now you have cultures across different sectors working together and that, that sort of drives innovation in a great way. It's one of the reasons somewhere like Cambridge remains so globally competitive is the fact it's got such strengths in complementary industrial sectors, innovation sectors like tech, life sciences, advanced manufacturing. So it's one of the reasons that it can stay at that front end of innovation on a global scale. In terms of the that technology influencing the actual physical real estate, are you have you also seen that your Occupy base in terms of the membership are looking for a different type of space as a result of this convergence between science and tech? Yeah, I mean, obviously the 
with the need to be processing huge amounts of data and, and connectivity, then the connectivity demand goes up and, and the digital infrastructure becomes pivotal. But equally, I think bringing different cultures of, of mindset to research innovation together, that, that's going to and is leading to very smart planning of the physical space people are in. Not just the, the sort of um, capacity and the ability of what it can handle, is actually how it's laid out. How do you create an environment where collaboration across sectors is key? And I think we've seen some great examples. You know, if you look at the ABCAM headquarters in, in Cambridge on the biomedical campus, quite unusual for a design in the sense that the labs are all glass windowed internally, so that from within the communal areas, everybody see in line of sight what their colleagues are doing. Uh, and I think that it creates that team environment in a way that when you were all in the lab doing pretty much the same thing, that was perhaps less of a challenge of how they felt part of a team. Whereas now you're having to get people in data science, understand why the biology is important and vice versa. So I think it's changed that, that destination feel. But I think that also ties into what the next wave of talent is, is driven by as well. I think they're looking for destination locations to want to work, that they align with the values and ethos of a company. And often the physical structure that's in to enable innovation is part of what attracts the best people. I think the destination point is really interesting. We're certainly talking to a number of clients at the moment that are increasingly spending more time around what the employee, what the customer experience will be. So not only at a company level, but also how they can influence how the people within that space that work for the occupier are engaging with shared immunity spaces. They're also looking at how they can open up that front door, as you said, so that when you're walking past a building, you might be able to see what type of science is taking place. And not necessarily, I obviously need to be careful about what's confidential and secure and giving away IP, etc. But certainly trying to bring the public into into the community, I think is really interesting. And as you said, it it's certainly influencing the type of physical space that, that people are looking for, particularly around, around the workplace. And on that point, in terms of the, the influence of, of technology or different of the, or sort of the impact of tech on, on workplace, have you seen that also impact in terms of how occupiers are using their space? Are you seeing some of your members putting some of their functions outside of their R&D headquarters, or are they actually trying to consolidate that all under one, one roof a bit more? I think you see a bit of both, I think. And, it, and it's a kind of perhaps driven by business need at a fundamental level. So as much as from an occupier's perspective in a, an R&D team, you might like them all to be in one location. I think then you have to deal with the realities of can you recruit the diverse set of skills you want to that location. So you may well find somebody from a, a tech and data space has a very different view of where they want to live and work than someone who's in the life science biomedical R&D space, for instance. You know, for a long time, we've seen creative industry type um, design companies and the tech sector want to be in kind of quite quirky buildings with some sort of history and narrative to them. Whereas the life scientists want really functional smart and efficient laboratories that are secure. So again, are you going to bring those cultures together to say what's the ideal workplace? So you may end up with your team in different places based on who you can attract. 
So you're going to have to be where the talent pools are. So I think it's one thing that we've seen great levels of investment come in. If companies then can't recruit the teams to deploy that investment and deliver the results, that's, that's a different challenge. So I think there is still a desire. Any business would like to have the most interactive environment altogether. But sometimes you have to be pragmatic. But So you see a bit of both. And do you think... On the innovation side, I mean, obviously, this is a this is an industry predicated on innovation, so that you can come up with the next big idea and obviously progress that in the most efficient but you know fast paced situation as possible. Do you think that the the need for people coming together and spending time with each other in a workplace so that you don't split these people up is actually a key a key part of the innovation taking place in the first place? Is there an argument that? If people are working from home, it's difficult to create that innovation in this sector. I think I've, I've always been a great believer in the fact that innovation is a contact sport. So the serendipity of bumping into somebody, not necessarily in your own company, somebody you might bump into at the, the train station when you're commuting or in the coffee shop or, or it may well be in the same building if it's multi-tenanted, let alone within your own company. And that's where just off-the-cuff ideas come up which plants the seed of thought where someone will go away and think oh maybe they had something we can do this a different way because that's how they do it or it's a thought they've had and I think that's very difficult to replicate in any online forum but I think that equally then puts the challenge down for employers because there is going to be a desire to work in hybrid work in a work from home more that people have experienced and get their work-life balance perhaps a bit under control. It probably helps congestion and climate change as well in reality in the big cities. So I think it throws a challenge to the employers and those therefore designing their buildings. How do you make the office or the, the workplace, whether it's lab or, or dry lab, wet lab, how do you make best use of the time those people are coming together? So identify the things they can do at home in isolation, write up reporting, etc., and maybe their own thinking but how do you create an environment at work that increases that serendipity and, and like I say, it's a contact sport where all the best ideas come from. Probably in the bar, it isn't anything to do with the lab, to be honest. I love that analogy of it being a contact sport. It's interesting because the, the clients that we work with, particularly the mid-cap and um, sort of larger pharma R&D companies, naturally they're constantly reviewing how they use their workspace and i think that covid certainly caused a lot of discussion obviously around how that would how that would work and clients are taking different approaches that's for sure but i think as you said tony it is linked to really what that business is doing what they might be in terms of their company growth what programs they might be undertaking and i think there is, there needs to be an individual solution in a lot of cases but i agree i think having the ability to come together share ideas innovate particularly with other companies is what makes some of these campuses so successful and and on that campus point i mean clearly there's been some long established clusters within the cambridge ecosystem and other parts across across the uk there is more space coming and i think there's i think the real estate community in a positive way is reacting to that how do you think a cluster needs needs to evolve to cater for to this growth i mean that we talked about workplace we talked about amenity. How do you think we can continue to promote Cambridge as the strong regional cluster in the UK? I think it's for every cluster, I think, and, and Cambridge is no different. It has to sort of accept, acknowledge and build on 
what is there for? You know, what's its, what's its goal here? Who are they trying to attract into the cluster? Because getting bigger doesn't always mean getting better. I, I think we have to be mindful of, again, it, it's a bit like work-life balance, but actually it's, it's how do you navigate those clusters if they become so congested and diverse of, of interest, they become much more difficult to navigate and you, you probably hinder innovation that way in, in a sort of a new economy type knowledge economy. So I think it's about just being smart. I think it's always dangerous if you try and predetermine what a cluster is going to be good at or in specific terms of technologies or, or fields. I think you, you can enable a lot. Um, but fundamentally is driven by people with ideas, people with money to back them, and, and a, a communal sense of that. So, so it's about the character of, or um, the personality of a cluster, if you like. Who does it attract to be there? And I think where we see expansion of areas like Cambridge, but Cambridge cluster is expanding, but it's expanding quite rapidly because places close to it, like Stevenage, are expanding, and Norwich. So I think that provides the scale. Then it's about working out, well, if you're going to be a centre of excellence to attract the best, what are you going to be a centre of excellence of? Is it going to be manufacturing? Um, is it going to be primary research? And therefore the proximity to academia, powerhouses and, and hospitals becomes really pivotal. So it's about, put, again, coming back to that, putting the right things in the right place to enable that, but don't try and lead innovators into what they should be doing. But I think it's, it's something that's always a challenge when you want the best entrepreneurs in your company, but actually the education system right the way in science, right the way into corporate structures is one of the things that entrepreneurs don't like because they don't play by the rules, <laughs> by their very nature. I was gonna say, well, that's probably part of what drives the innovation in the first point, isn't it? There's only so much you can choreograph. And it's interesting when you look at the how some of these, the more established clusters have evolved over time, they have done so organically. And because there's yeah. more competition now, I think having a having a USP makes sense, but not to the point where it strangles your ability to attract a broader range of occupiers because that convergence of science and tech that you touched on is so important, isn't it? Absolutely. You know. And we've talked we've talked about the knowledge economy and perhaps to come full circle to one of the sort of initial points we kicked off with. You mentioned it was a report from Lord Salisbury that sort of set the tone 20 years ago for, for what this initiative is. How important do you feel is the, is the government agenda and the public sector focus on, on the knowledge economy, in particular for the UK? I think, to be fair, it's, it's pivotal. Because much as I was saying you can't predetermine what innovators are going to want to do next, in, in some respects, actually, you do need to enable that. So you want to create channels and, and opportunities for innovation to flow rather than barriers that, that hinder it. So I think it is pivotal. We've been, I think, fortunate through successive governments now for, for many years that have been supportive of life sciences. And I think that was one of the clear reasons for that long-term support that we could respond to things like COVID-19 and, and be at the leading edge of innovation. Because without the investment for decades before that, you would never have had the infrastructure and the critical mass of expertise that could have responded that way and, and engaged. So I think it's going to be difficult for any government to say they're not going to keep backing science. Yes, we have challenges on the near-term uncertainties, what's going to happen with Horizon Europe and are we in or out, and how are we going to fund that science base. 
But I think the main thing the government policy for me has to get right is to make sure that it's positioning the UK to attract the best minds it possibly can from around the globe. And not just attract them, but then enable them to succeed. So don't do things that get in their way. I think sometimes the government trying to help isn't always helpful. It's better just to let those bright people get on with what they do. And, and you know, yes, I guess everyone who wants to get elected wants to claim credit for these things, but actually letting them do what they do and not get noticed is, is probably a bit like coming back to contact sport. It's like watching a rugby game. You don't notice the referee. They're probably having a good game. And I think the government needs a good game at the top end of its game around science policy and, and attracting and then looking at their broader desire to level up if you like not just attracting great researchers and innovators but leveling up and creating the infrastructure outside of those core clusters so that you can then harness that to level up so look at what happens in research what happens in development what happens in manufacturing what happens in distribution and then say, well, what belongs in what characteristic does a particular region or cluster have? Because you need innovation in manufacturing. It's not that innovation doesn't happen there. You need innovation in logistics. Otherwise, you wouldn't be competitive. So it's not about being innovative necessarily. It's about discipline disruption to some, to some extent. It's being innovative inside a structure that makes the whole thing better. Now, when you're doing blue sky research leading into inventions and then early innovation, that can be the breakthrough of a new therapeutic target or diagnostic. Maybe when it's right the other end of this on market access and distribution, if you like, in logistics, that means you're, you're smarter in terms of cost of goods through manufacturing and distribution, which can then disrupt. But maybe thinking about how we encourage different skill sets and mindsets into those things that help us innovate all the way along, not just at the start is where the government policy can really help around skills, around regional investments and infrastructure and, and connectivity. Really interesting, you know, great analogy again around sort of government acting as referee and enabler. I think that's, I think that's really important in terms of the infrastructure point clearly is, is key for not only the Golden Triangle, but the whole of the UK knowledge economy. And I think the point, the other point you're making, Tony, around thinking about this as a global, as a global focus, I think every single cluster in the UK, for me, and we've we've touched on this in other podcasts, has got their own strengths and has got significant potential. We are working in a in a global landscape in terms of the life sciences sector, and I think we're equally hearing about companies that we work with in the states or Asia Pacific also looking to come back to the UK because, as um, as someone you know in the industry, you, know, you get more bang for your buck in Britain's knowledge economy um, in terms of access to talent and skills and, and the research that's, that's taking place. So there was a, there was a nice article um, in The Economist today which described the life sciences industry as a jewel in Britain's economy. So let's, let's hope that long continues. Thank you very much for your time today. Really appreciated the conversation. Oh, it's a pleasure. And a I'm pleasure. sure and we think... will speak soon. Collectively, if we can make the UK not just attract the best, but make it more sticky so that their companies stay in the UK, then that, that's success for all of us, I think.